Welcome to Jason and the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Eric Hoffman. Oh, we got to dive into some more Robert Altman tonight. And we're going to talk about Brewster <laughs> McCloud, which I was lucky enough to just see in the cinema. And we were batting around what movie to talk about with Brewster McCloud. We had two finalists. One was MASH, because it came before Brewster and has a lot of thematic similarity. But we went the opposite pole. So we're talking Brewster McCloud and a Prairie Home Companion. Robert Altman's final film. Yeah. So what made you think we should connect these two films together, Eric? Well, initially, it was the fact that it was almost impossible to find another Robert Altman film to pair with Brewster McCloud. <laughs> so I thought, why not find what is probably the most self-consciously Altman-esque film of all of his films, and that would be A Prairie Home Companion, his last film. Uh, because certainly in that movie, he goes out of his way to meditate on some themes that he has been uh, working through throughout his career and reframe them within that light of nostalgia and looking back upon one's life uh, as the characters do in the film and as Altman does as the filmmaker. Mm -hmm. uh, so, it, and I would think actually probably most explicitly the reason I tied those two together is that both have blondes and overcoats. <laughs> they also both have angels. And they're, and they're both angels. Explicitly <laughs> angels, right? Explicitly angels, yes. <laughs> so on that note, <laughs> what did you think of Brewster McCloud again on the big screen? So we were just talking about Nashville before we got on, on this call. And one of the things I was talking about in Nashville is that it's a it's kind of a coherent film and it's even more coherent the more you think about it. The more all the pieces fit together, the more you think about it. And from that definition, Bluestrom McCloud's a little bit incoherent. I'm not sure all the pieces fit together. Uh, but Alvin calls it, you think it. It's intentionally incoherent in, well, in some sense. It's Altman's favorite film he made. You That's what I I learned that as well. He He mentioned that several times, that that was his personal favorite. Uh, so, um, the first, the first from his own production company, Lionsgate. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I think it's a success in his own terms because it's his favorite film. <laughs> you know, so we talk about this a lot when a, when a filmmaker, uh, has a successful film critically and commercially, usually just commercially, although critically as well as nice. But from a commercial standpoint, if they do have a success, they're often given free reign in the next film that it is that they make. And we've discussed this many times. Uh, Altman himself repeated that again later in his career when he decided after the player to make shortcuts and, and Kansas City and some of these other passion projects that he had been wanting to do for a number of years. So, uh, Brewster McCloud is, I think, probably kind of like a quintessential passion project, right? This is yeah. this seems like a very 
highly personal vision that's unfolding on screen. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. It's specifically anarchic vision. Right. Specifically kind of mocking everything in the world he could think to mock, while also <laughs> kind of celebrating everything at the same time. Yeah, slather everything he dislikes with bird shit. <laughs> Doesn't he never actually reveal? Yeah, so the bird shit murders, which we never actually learn who the murderer is formally. No, no. Although it's implied that it may be the angel uh, mm-hmm. or yeah. the raven, or perhaps the raven and the angel working in <laughs> concert with one another. Everyone who's killed, though, is a horrible, horrible, reprehensible, disgusting human being. Sure. You have the, like, the, um, ah, who's that character from It's a Wonderful Life? Potter. Uh-huh. You have that Stacy Keach character who's clearly modeled on on Potter. He's actually, isn't his name Abraham Wright, and he's supposed to be the youngest of the Wright brothers, the guys who invented flight? That's right, yeah. 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 And then you have Margaret Hamilton, uh, who's famously the Wicked Witch. Uh, from the Wizard of Oz, uh, at the beginning of the film, she's screaming at the uh, singers in the Houston Astrodome during the opening credits that they're singing in the wrong key. And of course, it's the Star Spangled Banner, which was written by Francis Scott Key. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then when she dies, you know, she's wearing the the red slippers um, from Wizard of Oz. Yeah, he's del- very deliberately pulling that very together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, there's that crooked cop who's, you know, planting marijuana cigarettes uh, so that he can get a camera from Brewster. And uh, there's the guy who, who uh, the 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 uh, muscle car uh, uh, racer who tries to who tried to rape uh, Shelley Duvall. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gets he gets it. Who else? And then I think there's a couple there. They're mentioned. They're they're like two or three victims in when the movie starts. Cause uh, when they bring in that outside detective shaft, shaft. <laughs> the shaft yeah, so. John shaft, right. Not John shaft. He's actually Michael Murphy. Who's like this incredibly kind of like, I don't know, just kind of like a, a cavity chested sort of <laughs> yeah. slumping shoulder. He's not what you think of. Like they build him up to be the super cop and then it's Michael Murphy. And you're like, Oh, Okay, that's it's a little disappointing, but he, he's obviously modeled on Dave Toskey from San Francisco Police Department. The bullet was based on, and yeah. of course, you get a car chase here in the film. But, but um, you know, I think when he finally arrives in the film, they have already mentioned that that the uh, there's already been two victims before they find the bodies of the uh, the right Abraham Wright and uh, uh, the woman who's uh, uh, Margaret Hamilton. So uh-huh. you're already a few murders into the film when the film starts proper. So it's almost like a serial killer is out there and uh, they brought in this, this super cop from out of town, which is completely unbelievable, by the way, that they would bring in a police officer from a completely separate jurisdiction. You know, The only other movie I can think of where they tried to pull that off was Beverly Hills Cop. Uh-huh. At least they gave it uh-huh. like a, a little bit more believable premise in the in the sense that he knew he was working outside his jurisdiction. <laughs> no, but the way they the, the way they hype him up and everything, and the way they treat him, and they're like he's so arrogant and ridiculously like into his clothes, and he, he's um, right. 
defies authority and all this. There's so much satire in there. So much, not even satire, it's parody. Oh yeah, Before and the, the piercing satire. blue, the piercing blue eyes he has, which are supposed to be like Steve McQueen's, you know, naturally blue eyes. Uh-huh. And then at the end of the film, when he gets into the car crash, you know, one of his contacts is falling out, and you see the brown. <laughs> 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 and he, you know, and he, so like the fact that he's made a fool of himself, and that his whole like facade is falling off apart from he can't even like take it one instant and he puts a bullet in his brain like you know <laughs> commit suicide rather than face the ridicule that awaits him you know that's how that's how full of himself he is yes yeah, it's so just completely it's completely over the top i mean it's it's uh the film is it makes no bones about the fact that it's a farce right yeah from start absolutely. to finish yeah start to finish it's a farce but there's right. some there's some important like reality to it too. There's something right. in there that that makes it feel like a deeper story. And I think it's the soul of Brewster and his dreams of flying and how he's this kind of deliberately an innocent. We can call him an innocent, on because um, so much of his, his existence about is about keeping his purity so he can um, fly without until he loses his virginity. It's implied he's going to be able to fly but then he loses his virginity to Shelley Duvall and um he's not able to achieve his dreams um, right so that, let's unpack that a little. right let's let's unpack that a little bit though okay this i this idea this uh connection that Altman is making to this film between birds and flight and the dreams of Brewster McLeod and freedom, right? And mm-hmm. art. To me, all of these things are sort of flowing together. That the bird is a symbol of flight, and flight is a symbol of freedom, and freedom is the is the uh, is the outcome of dreams, and art is the outcome of freedom. You know that all of these things are sort of being being meditated upon throughout this film in kind of a lyrical way uh, you know that's uh, interesting counterpoint to the farce that it's taking place within yeah it's it gives the feeling a real feeling of sorry gives the film a real feeling of a soul to it it's not just a farce it also of contrasts yeah i think yeah you know that the opening with the lecturers played by Rene Abergenois, I think is how you pronounce it, or Abergenou, uh, who played, um, he's been in a number of Altman films, but uh, previous to this, he played Father Mulcahy in MASH. Right, And so in this film, he's the lecturer, yeah, who's this guy, you know, the the film is sort of, um, it has this, it has this, uh, what would you call it? The, the the framing device that they use in this film of this lecturer who's it, the viewer of the film is auditing this guy's class essentially <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh he's talking right to the screen it's like really interesting uh framing device and he's slowly morphing into a bird as as the film progresses mm-hmm. but at the start of the film he's you know he's just a man and i think maybe he he has bird-like appearance to him. Uh, the actor does, um, but 
he's quoting is he quoting Goethe? I can't remember. Um, but he says the dialogue, I wrote it down. We must isolate the dream of man's flight was the dream to attain the ability to fly or was the dream the freedom that true flight seemed to offer man hmm. mm -hmm. so to me that's kind of setting the theme for the film like everything that's going to come after that whatever however comical or farcical or satirical or serious it may be it's all going to be an aspect of that contemplation and so much of what you see which is this kind of anarchic destruction of this um this um perceived kind of like um prior generations perceived um uh qualities negative qualities like racism or capitalism uh, all of these things that, you know, that the hippie generation <laughs> at the time was railing against, um, mm. you know, that's represented by these figures of authority, right? Yeah. Um, that they're, uh, they're standing in the way of this person's freedom. And so they have to be eradicated. These features of authority, figures of authority are just figures also of authority, right. are either ridiculous or crazy or actually evil. There's no authority figure in this movie from the security guard at the Astrodome all the way to the police right. officers who chase right. uh, who chase Brewster in their cars um, who, who are anything other than ridiculous or stupid or evil or just... Yeah, it's almost like I was watching Keystone Cops after a while. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, they're just so... They're so terrible at their jobs, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> even the cop who's supposed to be, you know, Frank Shaft, who's supposed to be this like all business detective from the, Houston, you know, uh, um, from the San Francisco to police department. You know, he's like he's not even doesn't seem all that, you know, uh, that he's cracked up to be. He's not competent. He's just a guy with an attitude. Right. In the end, aren't we all just guys with attitude? Are are we all just <laughs> right? Are we all just kind of doing our best? Yeah. Yeah, and he said Murphy himself says um, all the stuff was kind of being made up on the fly. I can see that. Uh right. I he really he really winged it. He would just come up with these ideas. And no pun keep... intended. Bob would see a fountain and put Sally in it, right? While she's dancing naked in the fountain. Yeah. By the way, he winged and Alpen had the same birthday and celebrated it together for many years. Cute little anecdote. Um, so he winged it. He winged it. He winged it. And no so, pun intended, right? And so to, you know, paraphrase Mark Twain, any semblance of order found in this film is yeah. unintentional or whatever <laughs> the phrase is. But there is a well, story to it, right? There is a story. And that's well, the thing, right? And this yeah. is the thing about Altman. There's a thread like, of a story. <laughs> there's a thread of a story. Right. So, so, you know, I have this thing about, there's a few things that I think are characteristic of Altman, right? One is the Zoom, which we get plenty of in this movie. So we get the overlapping dialogue, which yeah. we also yeah. get in this film. But sure. another thing that I love to call out about his films is that 
there's these plots that seem to not exist and then suddenly are there. Right. That are kind of these these plots that are just unfold like no one else's plots unfold. Sure. Um, and so in this film, I think a lot of it is the attractive the, how uh Brewster is a is so many people are attracted by Brewster mm-hmm. and find him to be compelling and how he's a force of chaos. Now he's someone that somehow has literally an angel on his shoulder and is therefore kind of blessed. And even, even when he flies, which we'll talk about in a minute, he's sure. also still still able to fly for quite some time. So is, is it necessarily a failure? Or is he at least achieving from an aesthetic standpoint the dream of what he wanted to become? Uh, okay, so I, I see this in two different ways. I see it as uh, art, as the liberatory, the lib- liberating quality of art. Um, and I also see it as uh, sexual discovery. Uh-huh. So I see both of those things running parallel uh, uh, with one another. I don't know if he means to be drawing any connections explicitly between artistic experimentation or discovery and sexual experimentation and discovery. I don't think he necessarily is. I think he's not so Freudian in that sense. But um, I honestly think that there are some parallels to that, like that awakening of a young man uh, sexually and also his awakening into this uh discovery of this world that's larger than him you know which is part of the uh, discovery of, that's part of the the process of the artist's development mm-hmm. is being able to you know perceive of the world outside oneself you know and and be able to communicate that to others uh so that he's building this contraption and like you know rembrandt right and um and this is his this is his artistic um, expression that's unfolding through the film until mm-hmm. he takes eventual flight. And then, of course, there's this, you know, I mean, we don't need to get into it, his developing romance with Shelley Duvall's character in this film. And then that kind of like kind of like and this is explicitly Freudian, that sort of motherly relationship that he has with Louise, the angel, who's, you know, giving him baths in the nude and <laughs> right um you know and and, oh and by the way while we're speaking about uh, and then there's hope that young girl who you know who's very attracted to him who he doesn't really put the moves on right like uh for one reason or another because she's an innocent or something um maybe he's afraid of deflowering her i don't know but um she's not too innocent well she's not but he perceives her to be that like he's not interested in her sexually you know Although she's clearly interested in him. Oh my God. Yes. Oh yeah. But, uh, and that's a great scene by the way, (laughs) where he's working out (laughs) and she's just like, you can see (laughs) in Uh her face. (laughs) Anyway, um, that this is, I think the first example of Altman's three women, uh, uh, in, in, in his films uh, louise uh was it hope i think her name is and then yeah. uh shelly duvall's character whose name suzanne. doesn't come to me immediately suzanne yes 
I don't know if you agree with me, but I think it this may be that like that three women in utero, you know. Oh, that's really interesting. Anyway, um, so at the end of the film, when he does eventually come out of his uh, cavern, you know, um, he's living in the Houston Astrodome, we should say, which was newly built at the time the film was made. It was like considered one of the seven wonders of the, they were calling it the eighth wonder of the world, right? Yeah. When it was initially built. Yeah. Uh, so it was kind of like this architectural um, feat. And he's living in the, uh, this is a sign of the times, in the fallout shelter in the basement of the Astrodome. Uh, and is that explained in the film? I can't remember it if it is. And it's never explained, right? What he's doing. I think they actually filmed it there too. Mm-hmm. It looks like it. It feels like it. It doesn't feel yeah. like a stage set. No, it doesn't. It feels Which is very so weird. strange. Mm-hmm. Because this is extreme counterculture film. Right. And okay, Alban's a big big creator, but like they're not just using the field at the Astrodome or the stands at the Astrodome. They're using every piece of it, including a moment where they go to the amusement park too. Yeah, in the um, parking lot. <laughs> quite a bit of and, quite yeah. a, the, the car, yeah, at the end is a, it takes place in the parking lot. So just the idea of like actually filming this inside like this kind of beat up section of the Astrodome that's kind of ignored, right. that alone is really interesting to me. Right. In, in a completely different in a, to compare it to a completely different movie. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen Cue the Winged Serpent, a um Larry Murphy movie, I think is his last name. Um, no. but it, it takes place in the Chrysler building. Mm-hmm. And the crown of the Chrysler building you expect to be this grand thing, but inside it's just a bunch of industrial stuff inside there. And it's kind of a little bit crushing, but also kind of cool to see uh, what things are like in the real world. Anyway, um uh my point is it just feels it it everything about this movie is just odd. Yeah. How is how's he get to live there? How is he able to have his space there? Does anyone know he's there? The guard seems to be stalking him. Like right. the guard stalks Ferris Bueller and Ferris Bueller's day off. Right. But uh he just kind of hides himself from him. Louise seems to be this trickster angel who's able to kind of basically put fog over everybody's eyes with her little tricks. Right. By the way, she's driving a AMC Gremlin car. So she's a oh. he's an angel driving a gremlin. I mean Yeah, right. Don't get me started, by the way, just as a side note, on the automobiles in this film. I just I was in heaven watching <laughs> this movie. Because there are some classic cars in this film. If you are a car fanatic, watch Brewster McLeod. <laughs> if, oh, if just yeah. for the car. <laughs> and Shaft's driving a Z28. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's such a cool looking car. My God. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Is it the same car as, as in um, Bullet or is it a different car? It is the same car as in Bullet. Okay. Yeah. So you're Quite really like deliberately Shaft is deliberately <laughs> making fun of uh, Bullet. Yeah, yeah. Because Bullet's also from San Francisco, and so is Shaft. Yeah, well, they were based on. I mean, uh, Bullet was based on an actual uh, police investigator named Dave Tosky. He was he headed the investigation of the Zodiac killer. Okay. So if you ever saw the Zodiac uh, film that came out, David Fincher's film. He yeah. was pr- portrayed by uh, Mark Ruffalo. 
in that. Film. Okay. Yeah. Same guy. Okay. So I was wondering it partway through, like, is Bullet or is Shaft actually Bullet? And this is <laughs> Altman just taking all the starch out of him. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously. Right? I mean, it is. Is it literally him? Because it really, like, this is a movie taking the starch out of everything. Right. From from the uh, MGM lion saying, I forgot my line. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you were going to mention that. <laughs> the band at the beginning playing Star Stangle Banner in the wrong key. Margaret right. Hamilton can't sing. Right. Uh, and, and like we were saying, all the police and all the other authority figures are just ridiculous. Competent, yeah. Um, and, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead, ahead. Cause I was going to, I was going to start talking about the ending. Well, I was going to, I was going to backtrack a little bit and talk about that. The idea of artistic awakening and sexual awakening at the beginning of the film, something else that the lecturer says at the outset is, uh, it may someday be necessary to build enormous environmental enclosures to protect both man and birds. But if so, it will be questionable whether man will allow birds in or out, as the case may be. Uh And obviously, enormous environmental enclosures. And here we are in the Houston Astrodome, right? Yeah. And this idea of this man-made environment, which is completely restrictive in the sense of it's completely enclosed from the outside world, from the natural world. Like you'd have a stadium, you know, like stadiums are open. If it rained, it rained, you know. Uh, if the if it was cloudy, it was cloudy. But here you have, and you had, and the grass, like it was natural grass. But in the the Astrodome, obviously, they've used astroturf. Uh, so everything is man made, and um, it's this idea of kind of like, and and like I said, he's living in the basement of the Astrodome, uh, in this com- also completely uh, a constrictive environment, yeah, and. Uh, He's almost like, and if you carry the symbolism of the bird symbolism in this film further, he's like in the egg, right? And then at the end of the film, he's breaking out of that, mm. you know, and taking flight. Um, but again, uh, it's this idea, uh, and and we can talk about the end of the film. <laughs> but uh, well, all right. What what did did you want to say about the end of the film? Let, let's start there. Yeah, there's the end of the film and there's the very end of the film. So first about <laughs> right. the end of the film. Yeah. Um, he breaks out. He's able to fly for what about 30 seconds to a minute on the screen? It seems uh, like about that. Yeah. The scenes don't match up though. <laughs> uh in, in in the scenes where we have him in medium distance, he's kicking with his legs to make the right. wings fly. Right. The scenes where it's close up, we see his arms flapping so the wings fly. On top of that, uh, we see the wires. The wires are so obvious. Right. Could not be more obvious. This is as bad as like the Superman TV show. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So if we take everything on the screen as exactly meant to be the way it is, then he's kind of mocking Brewster at the same time he's celebrating Brewster. Yeah, yeah, right. Right, because Brewster yeah. has his contraption, is able to fly, but is he, he, he has help 
inside this fictional construct from the wires. He has he's doing it inconsistently inside of what we see on the screen. So almost in a way, it's like Altman's undercutting this triumph by saying, well, yeah, but we know it's all fake anyway. Which then leads to the ending ending. Right. The credits ending, which is all this this just baffled me the first time I watched it. You know, where all the characters come out and they're all part of the circus except Brewster, who's lying on the ground dead. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, there were there were two endings filmed to this movie. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, let me read you from uh Robert Altman, the oral biography. Um Lou Adler, the producer. We did two endings. The ending I wanted was the last thing to be silent, except for somewhere over the rainbow playing. Bob wanted the ending we ended up with. The way he decided it was, we showed it in two theaters next to each other in the multiplex, five minutes apart, so we could see the reaction of the theater and then judge the reaction one to the other. I always thought mine was a better reaction, but he went with his. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so you go with Adler's ending, yeah. And of course, it's tied it, tying it directly to Wizard of Oz, which uh, gives this movie a different sort of feel. I'm not sure the Wizard of Oz resonates in the same way it would for oh, um, uh, what's that? What's the uh, sorry, the, the thinking of, of the um, David Lynch film. Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart, yeah. Wild at Heart, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that works in the same way. I don't think the analogy is all the way through. Uh, well, but, but are are we all clowns? Is he is he the clown whose dreams die? I, I, I'm not sure how to interpret either way. Okay, so a few things. The code the, the the coda to me seems lifted from eight and a half. Yeah. Intentionally. For okay, that's one thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but okay. Okay. I'm just throwing that out there. And then okay, so going back to Brewster in the egg in the uh, fallout shelter underneath the Astrodome, Louise is tending to him. He's in the bath, you know, like he's in the, the milk in the yolk. And, you know, she's talking to him about how, you know, she doesn't like these women who want to give him attention, that sort of thing. She wants to keep him there in his place. You know, uh, she may actually be responsible for the murders that are taking place together with that raven uh, yeah. who's is present. Uh, at the end of the film, after he confesses to the murders for some reason to Shelley Duvall's character, I don't know why he confesses that to Suzanne, if he thinks that he committed the murders because he was there in, in close proximity to these people when they died, or if he just wants to seem like a badass to her. I, I, I don't know what his rationale was for confessing to those crimes. Does he talk to the birds? Do the birds listen to him? Do they recognize another bird? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Maybe. I don't know either. <laughs> so... <laughs> So at any rate, he, he he's like um, this taking flight at the end. I mean, there's there's also some parallels with like you know the myth of of uh, Icarus, 
right? Sure. Yeah. And not getting too close to the sun, you know, uh, Icarus, of course, is uh, dealt with his own labyrinth, you know, <laughs> that he's trying to free himself from and wants to emulate his father, Daedalus, you know, it, by by constructing these wings and taking flight. And then, of course, he gets too close to the sun and, and the wings that he's constructed, which are made of wax, melt and he falls to his death. That's right. That's the myth. So there does seem to be a little bit of Icarus in that at the end where he's taking flight and then falls to his death, right? Yeah. It does seem to be a little bit of Greek mythology in the mix in there. And I think that's just maybe an example of Altman having some fun, yeah. you know, a little bit. Um, but what does that say, you know, as far as if you are looking at it as this sexual awakening or you are looking at it as artistic awakening what does that say about that at the end of the film that he's fallen to his death is he saying that these pursuits are dead ends <laughs> yeah more or less but, but it's an awfully cynical there, position there, there, for someone like Alpha to take at this point in his career that there's no way out yeah i don't know i i it's not really like so I have another I have another potential theory to throw out there. Yeah. So Louise is an angel. She's a fallen angel of some sort, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know any of Louise's story, but her angels were her wings were removed from her back. Right. Is it possible she's grooming Brewster to become an angel? <laughs> and that if Maybe. he hadn't lost his virginity. Oh yeah. He might right. not have been able to fly, but he would have crashed in a way that would allow his soul to transcend. He wouldn't have needed fake wings because he, he would have had real wings. Is that yeah. what you're saying? And maybe yeah. he stays dead because, in fact, his soul was pure enough because maybe the murders he helped to commit were redemptive enough to allow him to ascend. So everyone else continues on as clowns and fools and idiots. Right. Just just uh, sideshow performers. The main act is able to transcend. So maybe what he's saying is the only release from the comedy, the farce of life. Let's say the farce of life is death. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's wow. the only way in. Wow. Well, so Mash is explicitly talks is about death. Uh, Brewster, Mc, uh, not Brewster, excuse me, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Obviously, uh, death is uh, the ending is like suffused with death. There is right. like a strong kind of element to that in Altman's early films, right? I mean, when yes, uh, there is when McCabe wanders out into uh, wanders out into the the um sorry when mccabe wanders out to the snowy wilderness outside of presbyterian church like you know it, he's in this desolate place where he's going to die so um yeah i guess i guess that is like a, a real strong element in his early films well it's certainly a, as a well strong... as the emotional as well as the emotional ambiguity of things sure 
Well, death certainly is a extremely strong element in a prairie home companion. Kind of pervades. And the in movie. fact, I would say it's the entire film is a meditation on the finality of death. Appropriately so, as Altman was at the time uh, dying from leukemia when they were filming this. He was quite sick. And uh, so much so that they needed to line up Paul Thomas Anderson as a potential um, fallback position when they signed the insurance for this film. Uh, as a, a wonderful backup. picture of him in this Altman coffee table book of the two of them together, which is um, just a beautiful, sweet picture. So um, Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, I mean, famously directed the most non the most altman non-altman film ever made which is magnolia which is a wonderful film yeah i was joking with a friend about it being shortcuts part two <laughs> right <laughs> and uh there will be blood came out 2007 that was dedicated to the memory of of altman yeah, he obviously they were very close from all reports, and he um, right. they quote Anderson in the same book, and Anderson was just in awe of him the entire time. Sure, I can't uh, imagine this movie though as a as a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Believe it or not, it would have been an extreme outlier in his filmography, other than the fact that it has John C. Riley in it. <laughs> right, I think it would have been a much different film had he taken over the the directing or if he had needed to complete it uh, as it stands it is a uh i would say a uh delightfully altman-esque altman film um it seems to have all the hallmarks of uh Altman, all of the stylistic touches that you would expect, obviously the moving cameras, the overlapping dialogue, um, but also it has a kind of wonderful irreverence to it, even though it's a film that's ostensibly a meditation upon death. It still has a kind of lightness to it. There's, there's a deafness to its touch that I think is really fascinating and and extremely um, fresh. It's about performers getting out there and doing their performances and having a great old time of it. Right. And what I think is at the heart of Prairie Home Companion is this kind of feeling of the big family. Such a the, the beautiful scene at the end of you know everyone gathered together at the coffee shop kind of talking about, we don't want this ever to end. We want to go back on the road and do our final, final show. Sure. And, and when we see, you know, we also have um, the Johnson girls, Yolanda and Rhonda, Lily Tomlin and Meryl Streep, and they're talking early on about how there used to be four of them in their group, and then they lost one sister, then the other, and there's a sense of moving on with your life, keeping going with your life, um, just just sure. allowing yourself to celebrate what it means to be who you are in life and not allowing the the sadness to overcome you but also really recognizing that 
it's also recognizing that who you are is not just like the sum total of your experiences or the stories that you tell. Like it's this recognition that every moment is a new opportunity to discover yourself again, anew. Ooh, keep going with that. Well, just like, you know, um, so th this is a film about, a, it's based on a radio show that lasted 30-something years, right? That was on the air, yeah. Very Home Companion. So yeah. it was, this was like a, a um, yeah, it was an institution, right? I remember going up to the Berkshires decades ago and seeing them perform this live, you know. Oh, did you? Uh, cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they, you know, they would tour around, uh, much like they're talking about touring around at the end of this film, right? They would they would take the show on the road, and everybody knew it. It was just like it was one of those shows. It was an institution. People listened to it. It had this kind of folksy throwback to an older era of radio shows, but it did it with this kind of distinctly Midwestern self consciousness and kind of extremely dry humor uh, yeah. that was also really kind of like had a real edge to it. It was a really kind of like biting satirical edge to it, but it was so politefully, <laughs> politely um, performed that, you know, a lot of the, the harsh edges just would wash over you. Right. So you wouldn't realize how stinging a comment would be until like a couple of minutes after you heard him. Uh -huh. <laughs> I think some of that has to do with Garrison Keillor's delivery, you know, because he's just got that wonderful uh, Minnesotan. Yeah, maybe the closest sort of... thing to compare to be something like Welcome to Night Vale or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, but not so, quite. There's something different about it. Yeah, right. So this this film, the premise is that here's this theater. Uh, the Fitzgerald Theater, which is named after F. Scott Fitzgerald, the author who's from St. Paul, Minnesota, where this takes place um, in the Midwest, which is where Robert Altman is from. So I think there was a little bit of a personal connection there for him because he's from Kansas City. Yeah. Uh, Minnesota was nicer than Kansas City. That's one of the jokes of that they <laughs> make in the books. So Kansas City was a more rough and tumble town. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, well, Kansas City has a little bit of the South to it, you know, it, it, it's, it's a little harder edge. Yeah. And, and more of a, it's more of a city, whereas St. Paul is, it's a city, but it's kind of like a small town pretending to be a city. By the way, another <laughs> massively underrated Altman film. I'm a big fan of Kansas City. Yes. Very good film. So, so the, the premise of the film is that this this theater is being shut down because it's been purchased by this conglomerate down in Texas. And they're giving their last performance. And I think the film is in real time, is it not? I think it is. I was noticing that last time I watched it. Yeah, which is always really interesting to me mm -hmm. uh, w when that's done. I mean, what? how difficult is that to to do, do successfully uh, as a film? And And the editing in this film, by the way, just structurally speaking, this film is like, kind of like a master class in filmmaking the editing is exquisite yeah 
You're right. As you, as you would expect from Altman, and obviously it's late in his career, and so he's managed to, you know, uh, uh, reach a level of his artistry where he's kind of like perfected his ability to to put a film together. Um, not that he was l less good at it earlier on. I mean, obviously we talked about Nashville, and that's like one of the most perfectly edited films <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm not familiar uh, with his editor Jacob K Craycroft. Um, and obviously, Altman wasn't able to edit most of this movie himself, so right. And I, I think they completed it after he passed away. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it, it, it's an incredibly well edited film, it yeah. just it just moves along at, at a very even pace. The tone throughout the film is completely consistent unlike brewster mcleod which kind of seems to be anarchically like you said all over the place tonally speaking uh -huh. this film is is like a a tone poem it's just like and it but it's not boring like you know it's not like uh it's not like a movie that would put you to sleep because the way that it sort of weaves from scene to scene and from story to story and every story that a character tells and this is a film about stories these these are storytellers who are telling stories and most of the film takes place backstage where they're just sort of talking to one another reminiscing about their experiences and what it is that brought them to where they are in their lives and the losses that they've had and 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 the experiences that they've had along the way and they're just kind of relating it to each other in this really kind of like easy natural sort of back and forth manner that you know is is really compelling to watch uh, and of course the acting is you know well, you've got Meryl Streep, you've got Lily Tomlin, uh, you've got uh, Kevin Klein, who's playing this guy noir character, uh, who's directly out of the uh, Prairie Home Companion uh, show, and and he's been reified on screen as this um, dapper character. I mean, and on the in the radio program, Garrison Keillor plays Guy Noir, but here he's performed by Kevin Klein, and yeah. he's sort of he's kind of like this perfect Altman-esque character in, in some of these films where you have you do have a lot of it's it's an ensemble cast you have to have that connective tissue between the characters that kind of like holds it all together and that's who he is he kind of like flows from character set to character set and provides that connective tissue throughout the film and it, it, anyway so that's that's more or less the premise of the film but but really what the film is about is uh, their sense of loss um, at the ending of the show, because this is uh, something that they've done for a very long time, and yet they still have a passion for it. Everybody's yeah. you don't have any sense that any of the people involved in it hate what they do or are bitter about it. This this is like I'm sorry. Go ahead. This is what I like. This is what I think Alpin really responds to in this film. He's famous for creating these film sets where everyone feels like a family, right? He's famous for his, his evening parties and his ways of having everyone hang out together, right? Notoriously in Popeye involved everyone out drinking all night and telling stories and having contests about songwriting and all kinds of things, right? And so this is what Altman loves. This is his creating. He's He's telling a story about creating a family that's all united around a creative endeavor. Right. And yes, exactly. Right. Such a strong feeling of him being completely at home with creating this story that this is in some ways like this valediction of, of the stories he's been telling all his career. 
Mm-hmm. He tried. I think he bowed towards that with like the company. Yeah, but yeah, it's a different sort of film. It doesn't quite work for that in this way, in, in the way that this film works because you know it's dance. It's more performance based. This is more friendship based, right? And um, I just found it to be really powerful is like this this veiled autobiography where you know we have garrison keeler on the screen who i have very mixed feelings about i have trouble watching him at times um but also who is kind of almost in altman's shoes you know as the mc as the man kind of at the center of everything the man who's in charge of making sure everyone is comfortable and happy and fitting their cues Mm -hmm. obviously not a flaw not an easy analogy because he's an active character and everything but anyway um like you know that he open for a change has an actual surrogate on the screen yeah and that yeah. gives it a different feel also that's true i didn't think of him really as an altman surrogate until you mentioned it but now that you say that i definitely can see that he does so keeler you have mixed feelings about him i mean obviously uh he was one of the early uh examples of cancel culture you know so it, mm-hmm. there is a little bit of that aftertaste in this film because of his uh, dalliances uh, <laughs> in his personal life, which he got called out for. Uh, but uh, just as a performer, I thought uh, he was convincing. I thought he was an interesting character. I, I do think that um, in this film, he's definitely sort of taking on, he's definitely continuing that persona from the stage show. But at the same time, I think he's portraying a character and he has yeah. this uh he has this kind of like wonderful Midwestern sensibility about him where he's just kind of like um, s- sort of rather uh, uh, interestingly unsentimental about things in contrast yeah. to the other characters. You know, yeah. he seems like, oh, you know, uh, well, the show's ending, you know, so that's so it's ending. So I'll go do something else. And I think at the end of the film, he says, oh, yeah, I'm working as a parking attendant. <laughs> and they're like oh really you know he went from being a uh star of the show to being a parking attendant he's like yeah it gives me time to read my books you know <laughs> it's like and just kind of pre-morning like, his own death yeah 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 you know and and he just seems to kind of be resigned uh i think in a way he's trying to personify that distinct uniquely kind of midwestern uh, pragmatism you know that the midwesterns are midwesterns are sort of like famous for right mm-hmm. and and so he definitely has that persona of you know um i, I love the scene where they what the lq jones character died I mean, how great to see lq jones on screen by the way um yeah i just looked him up i remember lq jones was in the wild bunch oh and, yeah uh, the, the ballad of cable hogue like this is yeah. like, he's legit yes yeah um Cat Garrett Billy and, the Kid, a boy and his dog. Sure. Uh Mother Jugs and I mean this guy's like, like a he was a big deal when he yeah, was. Yeah, man. Absolutely. So uh he is he's kind of like this small character in this film, but it comes on, sings a song, and he's supposed to meet up with the sandwich lady for their little rendezvous, and he passes away, you know, they find him dead. And so here's this physical manifestation of what the film is about right now it's become like real so it's in the abstract like oh the show's ending so now we're all sort of like symbolically contemplating the death of something you know and we're all getting older and so it's all of these things are sort of hinting toward this abstract 
idea of demise. And then here's someone actually physically dies. He sings his final song. Right. He goes back to relax and he dies. Very peacefully. And he's got the candles lit and he's got the romantic song playing because he's ready for this rendezvous. He can't wait to see this girl. What a great way to go, in my opinion. Couldn't, Couldn't be a better way to go, right? So, uh, and, uh, you know, and so now here's this physical manifestation of what everybody's been talking about or talking around throughout the film all the way up until this moment. The girl's writing poems about suicide, you know, Lindsay Lohan character. Lindsay Lohan. Uh, everybody's talking about people that they used to know who aren't around anymore, you know, and there's all of this. It's sort of in you 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 see it along the edges, you know, like sneaking in, just like Virginia Madsen is one of these other great silent Altman characters who's sort of walking through the film silently. You know, you can think of any number of Altman films where you have that character, right? I wanted to, I, I tried to pause while I was sneezing instead of... Uh... <laughs> so, um, and she's not saying a thing, right? Uh, death is hovering around, not saying a thing, and then he dies. She, she's obviously the one who took his life, right? And then she starts to speak. Then she starts to elaborate on who she is and why she's there and it turns out she was this fan who was on her way to have this uh, rendezvous uh with someone interestingly enough and her car crash while she was listening to a prairie home companion and so therefore her fate is sort of aligned the punchline to that joke oh yeah that's great yeah that's not very funny the penguin he says oh why are you wearing a a tux or or no uh what is it Uh, why are you so dressed up I think. Why are you dressed up? Why are you so dressed up? And uh, uh, you're, I can't remember what it is, but the punchline is what makes you think I'm not, which is what makes you think I'm not wearing a tux? That's what one penguin says to the other. I can't remember what the setup is. But she says, that's, the that's not that funny. It's not that funny, right? <laughs> so, you know, well, well, I, I can't remember how I got on this, but but essentially, um, <laughs> oh, I was talking about Garrison Keillor's character mm-hmm. and and his, and his nonchalance. So there, this this was all a long way around it to set up this wonderful uh, thing that he says, where everybody wants him to give a speech. They want him to give a speech about the closing of the show. You got to give a speech at the end of the show, and then this guy dies. Well, now you got to give a speech about this this guy dying, you know? And he says, no, I don't want to do it. And he's, what? why not? I mean, do, wouldn't you want somebody to say a speech about you? Don't you want people to remember you? That's what Lindsay Lohan is asking him this. And he responds, I don't want people to be told to remember me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's such a wonderful line, you know, which is to say, I want people to re- remember me on the value of who I was, not not because I've been told that I have value, or I, that not because people te- have told them that I have value. I want them to value them for me, for who I am, themselves. There's a sad element to this too, which is over time, everyone is forgotten. Right. Over time, I mean, ask anyone under the age of 40, they probably have never heard of a Prairie Home Companion. They'd go into sure. the movie blank and say, what am I watching? I, I, I have no comprehension of what this world is they're depicting. And right. it's legit, right? Uh, it's kind of the same thing with with 
Robert Altman too, right? And right. it's actually well, the kind of the same thing as we have experienced in the world of Brewster McLeod, which actually probably made a lot more sense 50 years ago than it does today. Because, you know, the past is another company, uh, the past is another country, excuse me. And, um, right. and that, or, or what, that film especially feels like it's just different. Or, or what about the theater itself, the live theater or the radio show or Guy mm -hmm. Noir for that matter, who's obviously a throwback to the old kind of like Maltese Falcon I, uh, era and sensibility of the private detective, right? And he's no longer a private detective. He's working as a as a as a theater security essentially. He's still dressed like it's the 1940s, and he's still yeah. speaking like it's the 1940s. It's like this leftover from the past that's anachronistic now. It no longer has a place anymore, and that's like why the Axeman shows up, who's played by Tommy Lee Jones. And of course, he's only in the film. For a few short scenes, but it's Tommy Lee Jones, so <laughs> uh, le leaves an impression. And you know, he, he comes in from Texas, and he's they bring him up to the Guy uh, uh, Noir takes him up to the um, to the luxury lounge, which isn't glassed in. And yeah. he's looking through the glass. He's like, I feel like I'm watching monkeys at the zoo. You know, he's just like mm -hmm. completely dismissive. And then he looks over at a bust of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he says, "Who's that?" So, so that's F. Scott Fitzgerald. He's a, a writer. Uh, the theater's named after him. And he says, who's he? There you go, right? He was considered one of the great American novelists, right? And here's this guy. He's a businessman, right? But he has no idea who he is. Yeah. He's one of the great American novelists, right? You should remember um, high school English, but... Right, you remember from high school English. And then he says, you know, like, we were part of a, a time of the Jones says... It, well, he said, what kind of books do you write? Oh, well, uh, Guy Noir says, well, they were romantic books, you know, romance novels, romantic novels or something like that. He goes, I don't really read those. I don't really read books. Yeah. And then he's watching the performance and he he says, you know, I used to be in a, a jazz band when I was younger, but we weren't any good, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and, and people told us we were good. So we broke up and we went and did other things. And that's what these people are going to do. You know, we're going to close the theater and they're going to go find something else to do. Just no, there's no passion. There's no, there's no passion because you can tell there's no passion. He has no artistic sense. Uh, the band he was a part of was a terrible band. They were a terrible yeah. band because none of them had the passion to play passionately, which it's conveyed to the audience. If you're not passionate about it, the audience just doesn't feel the passion. You're no good. He doesn't sense the passion that these people have for what it is that they're doing. He just sees it as dollars and cents. And kind of like this Jack Walsh, you know, trimming of the budget. Uh, something he sees it as the anachronism. He sees it as the thing that should have gone the way of the dodo long ago. And there's well, no the room thing that's for really it kind of sweet and sad about this movie too. It's um, Alpin realizes he's how lucky he's been to be able to make his living making films, and all the characters in this film also are just have a happiness they'd be able they've been able to perform all their lives and not have to put those skills up on their shelves and through that they form you know deep friendships and uh created a second family for themselves even when the two sisters other sisters pass away they're still to be able to they're still able to be part of a big family 
And that's part of what makes this movie feel so much like an elegy too, is that there's a sense of, you know, uh, this family slowly starting to drift it, drift away just by its nature. Right. right. And, you know, they'll be their their relationships will be or just just, just, well, just right. over time and there'll be a let a story that people occasionally tell each other. By its nature, but also by design, you know, because would the theater have gone on longer had the Axeman, you know, had they not been purchased by this corporation? You know, that's sort of left as a little bit of the unspoken. And there's a little there's a little uh, remnant of that youthful Altman, that kind of anarchistic, anti-capitalist artist uh, who's sort of um, in this film criticizing that that uh, callousness of business you know that mm-hmm. the um the business is the business aspect of show right <laughs> yeah yeah but in the end he's Which, saying it don't worry me right right but yeah. there's also and, and then you know you mentioned that end of the film where they're in the uh the diner and it's a it's a great little scene, you know, where they're pre- planning this. Um, <laughs> they're planning this this uh, road show, and they even they've even got uh, Garrison Keillor on board. You know, the guy who could take it or leave it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and uh, she's bought a six thousand dollar van or something like that, and, and Lindsay Lohan shows up, and now she's this kind of she's morphed into this estate planning type person you know who's yeah. kind of going over all of her mother's finances and just you know um you get the sense that she's kind of um playing um alex p keaton to her hippie oh, yeah. mom you yes. know <laughs> and uh <clears throat> and uh you know and then but you ha- so there's a sense that like um that that freedom, that that willingness to um, to put things on the line and to take on uh, projects that are passion projects or or may not pan out, you know, um, that that's not necessarily uh, reserved for the youth, you know, that these are older people, and still, still, you're right. They're still willing to to for their art uh, go out on on um, a limb for it. And um, both and both Streep and Klein are quoted in, in this Altman book. And um, Klein says everything was in this kind of wonderfully liberating limbo of reality on reality, improvisation <laughs> structure. And um, Streep says the same thing. Um, yeah give them she she gave them permission i love this i love this phrase she that streep gives it's sort of like a kaleidoscope he gets all the colors in there but as he's shape-shifting it he's not afraid to let the lights fall where they may i think that's really it other smaller talents are more jealous of it more worried about keeping control the great ones like bob don't care about that in fact they hope you will and so that to me is like the ultimate valediction, right? This man who all the way back in Brewster McLeod, 
his second major film, third major film, if you include That Cold Day in the Park, um, was allowing actors and encouraging actors to improvise. There, 40 years later, he's doing the same thing. And he's, right. he's um, creating something that's really memorable and powerful. It's a, that's a remarkable legacy. It's not the greatest film ever made, but he is going out on top. He's going out truly himself. Yeah. Yeah, it's not the greatest film, I, you know, but it, it's it it's a touchstone film, I think, for him. Uh, I think it's an important I think it was an important film for him. I think he sensed it was probably this was probably going to be it. And uh, you can get you. You have the sense that he's put a lot of passion into it, but he's faded, you know, and there's a little bit of that at the end of the film where a guy noir attempts to derail the closing of the theater by getting asked all the angel to uh, orchestrate the death of the ax man. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was yeah, a little troubled true. by that. It seemed, seemed kind of perfunctory to me and out of place, but then mm. I, I thought about it a little bit more and I was like, no, you know, this is like, this is like a perfect metaphor for how people try to stave off the inevitable. And that ultimately you can't. And at some point you have to, reconcile yourself to um outcomes and make the best of it and so and that's what that last film and or that last scene in the film is about it's about making the best of the of these outcomes it's about making the best out of life really you know De dealing with the hand that you've been dealt sort of thing yeah and i mean i i love that scene where he's you know, he's the over, uh, you know, he's narrating the film, uh, Kevin Klein as Guy Noir. And he's playing the piano, you know, in that last scene. And he's got the bust of F. Scott Fitzgerald, weather tearing down the theater, you know, and, yeah. and bringing down the walls and everything's coming down. And you get that sense, like Altman knew, like, that was my last set were taken down, you know, like, yeah. that's it. You know, this this was this this world that I had constructed through all of these films. You know, you all know, of these. He was, he was literally working on another film right before he died. Yes, I, I, I know that, but I can't help but feel that there was a subconscious knowledge on just, his part. Oh yeah, I think you're right. I mean, if he's but again, sick. I mean, come on. But again, and and that's where that last scene again seems so autobiographical, is that you continue on even in the face of finality, like you don't surrender you know and like he was still planning another film i think i think he by the time they completed the filming of this movie and its release didn't he direct a, a stage performance of an arthur miller play or something he did yeah it was um, right resurrection blues right was that, that filmed theater in london spring 2006 it was not filmed it was not filmed oh and then, and then I think he was, he had another uh, film planned, which was uh, um, called Hands on a Hard Body. Hands on a Hard Body, yeah. Right. Which is about, a, it's an endurance contest, <laughs> essentially. It seemed really kind of like an odd sort of project for Altman, interestingly enough. Not that mm -hmm. any, you know, judging by Brewster McLeod, like he could probably do whatever he wanted to do, you know. <laughs> So as you know, I watch all of Altman's films and I rank them. 
And I ranked Brewster number 19 and I ranked Prairie Home number 20. Interesting. interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. I would rank a Prairie Home Companion higher than Brewster McLeod personally. Um, I don't know. I I just seem to get have gotten more out of it. I enjoyed Brewster McLeod uh, for all its disorderliness, but there's just something so sweet and uh so elegiac about a prairie home companion i i just find it very compelling viewing brewster mcleod i i don't know I, I i'd have to be in a real specific mood to watch that movie <laughs> whereas if a prairie home companion came on tv or whatever and it was already you know playing or something i'd probably just sit down and watch it that sort of thing you know yeah um yeah i can see that um, I love the. Uh, I love the. I would move it above number twenty. Actually, keep going. Sorry. Well, I loved uh, Asphodel's comment about uh, El Chuck's death, and she says, uh, "the The death of an old man is not a tragedy." Yes. <laughs> you know, an old man and that there's I, Altman must have written that line. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that just sounds straight from the mouth of Altman because, you know, he 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 kind of like had that uh, air about him toward the end. You know, like yeah. I don't know if you ever saw when they gave him the Lifetime Achievement Award. I think it was called at the Oscars. Yeah, and he just had a real sense of, hey, look, I've been so blessed to be able to do what I've done. You know. And I think as a young man, you know, he was railing against the system and he was making films that were quite intentionally going against the grain. It was the spirit of the times and he was living hard and fast. And I think he got to a place where uh, he had a lot of second acts, you know, like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald says there's no second acts, American lives. He had like two or three or four acts in his career, you know, and uh and I left a body of work that's like really kind of like unparalleled among American filmmakers. I mean, it really is kind of its own world in a way, you know? Yeah. yeah you want to Separate. compare it to someone like Spielberg, but it's not because of the, the types of movies he made. Right. Um, yeah. And you're hitting on the last point I was going to make, which is that Prairie rarely is an old man's movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. What really does that say about me that I like it? Anyway. What's that? <laughs> I said, what does it say about me that I like it so much? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm not judging you for that. It's a man like <laughs> contemplating his morality, thinking about uh, looking back as opposed to looking forward. It's a man yeah. kind of contemplating grace and peace and legacy as right, opposed right. to a man contemplating you could read the death of Brewster in the end is kind of about Altman's anxiety following up on MASH. Mm -hmm. Am I going to crash and burn for doing my own thing? I want to build my own wings, but if I build my own wings, am I going to end up um, being laughed at by clowns? And it's a legit concern. Um, right. Yeah. It might be one reason he went to doing more working in traditional genres after that for his next few films. Yeah, it, 
And I, if I may make one last observation. Of course. Genres. <laughs> Genres. Very important in any discussion of, of uh, Altman. Uh, I would say Brewster McLeod has a number of genres that he's playing with, but I think it's the first example of his foray into detective genre. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and interestingly enough, I, you could make the case that a Prairie Home Companion was his last uh, <laughs> foray into that genre. If you count, you know, the guy noir, Sure. Storyline as yeah. being the, the sort of detective storyline. And when I think of detective films, Altman's made some of the best. I mean, The Long Goodbye is one of the great detective films in my mind. Um, so, you know, it's 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 kind of uh, the, the other the other genre uh, that that um, Prairie Home Companion is following up upon is is performance like we were talking about performance art artistry you know um behind the scenes especially so you had like well obviously nashville um uh, you had uh let's see what else uh oh the player obviously is a behind the player, the scenes Hollywood right? thing uh, um fred porte which is the fashion industry mm-hmm the company the city is very much about jazz. And of course, jazz, you the jazz right. 34 documentary also. Right. The company about uh, dancers. Ballet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a perfect couple is about pop music. Oh, that's right. Perfect couple. And and uh, Buffalo Bill and the Indians. Yeah, uh, performance is right there on the surface of that. Right. So, again, this these are, uh, I, I really, you know, I really see that as kind of like, uh, yet another example of Altman sort of playing around with genres, you know, he's he doing it to the very, to the very end, you know, it's, it's really yeah. just kind of like incredible. You, you don't have to persuade me of that. <laughs> so watching uh, these with me, Eric. I'm glad we, yeah, drew the, that, draw, glad we drew the lines between these two. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I, I loved I, it when when we were we were tossing movies back and forth, and I think I mentioned like Fool for Love or something. You know, I was just casting for any kind of like uh, film that we could match up, and uh, and then I mentioned a Prairie Home Companion, and you said, "Oh, an old man's movie and a young man's movie," and that you know it didn't even like occur to me at the time I threw it out there, and I was like, "Yeah, it's true," because. This is like Brewster McCloud is really kind of in my mind. That's kind of like the first Altman movie, you know, really. I mean, MASH, yeah, to a certain extent. But Brewster McCloud seemed to be that was his own studio. And that seemed to be where he really uh, started to find his voice. Specific. Yeah. yeah. And then it culminates a really nice elegy of a movie. <laughs>